When I was a uh, student uh, at Columbia, one day I was accidentally brought into a lecture uh, by somebody uh, whose name sounds very strange to me. This is the first couple years since I arrived in America, English wasn't quite there. The name sounds like a free lunch buffet type of thing. <laughs> but, but that lecture by uh, Buffett really fundamentally uh, changed the trajectory of my life in America and really gave the career that I enjoy immensely today. And so it gave me a great pleasure to be back into this type of a setting to communicate directly with the student. Uh, now today I want to talk a little bit about the uh, value investing. The basic concept of a value uh, investing obviously is, uh, is uh, many, many decades old. But today, I think it is as relevant as when it was first laid out by Benjamin Graham at Columbia six, seven decades ago. There's essentially there's a three basic ideas. Uh, the first one is the stock is not a piece of a paper that you trade, but it represents a fractional ownership of a company. And therefore, valuing the stock ought to really have a basic variance of evaluating the company as a whole. And then secondly, that evaluating any financial asset that uh, you have to really predict the future, uh, the discounted cash flow of the future cash earnings. And the future is uh, inherently difficult to predict. And therefore, you really want to leave yourself a margin of safety so that you could be wrong, or you could be right, but because the future is a distribution of, of, of opportunity, I mean, of statistic possibilities, say you bet on something that at 90% of the chances you could be right, but then a 10% chance occurred, and so all of a sudden it becomes 100%. So you want to leave enough of margin of safety, in other words, you want to buy at a low enough of a price even if all the adverse uh, events occurred against you in the future, uh, you will still be in the game. It doesn't mean you won't lose money, but it just means that you will not lose so much that you'll be out of the game. Because investing is really a long game. It can play over the life of anybody's career. And so you want to be really in the game somehow <laughs> over the long haul. And the third concept is Mr. Market, to figure out a frame of a mind to think that uh, when the market is against you, you look at it as a, uh, a, a neurotic uh, Mr. Market that's uh, prone for emotional and irrational behaviors. So those are the three basic concepts. At the heart of it is obviously it is this bargain idea that you want to really get what you pay for. Now, Obviously, that's what everybody wanted. And if everybody wanted the same thing, you would think that uh, all of the professional investors would be value investors. And that's just a further <laughs> thing from truth. In fact, value investing, as is properly practiced, constitutes a tiny, small minority of all the investment professionals. Majority of the people hold a different views. And let me just articulate them the alternative views about investing. Number one, that yes, stock 
legally represent a fractional claim, a fractional ownership, but is first and foremost a piece of a paper you can treat all the time. And therefore, it follows that a successful investing lies in the successful guessing of the stock movement based on whatever informed theories or practices that you can find. And thirdly, that the market is to be respected, indeed to be feared, because they really, through the market, you can actually find a value, and through the market, you can actually buy and sell. So this scenario go a different view, and it sounds even more persuasive than the first views that I laid out as a value investor. In fact, I would say majority of the people really follow the latter rather than the former. So as a young student trying to get into the business, which way do you follow? I would suggest that before you do that, you would go through some fundamental studies as to the result of various different approach and philosophies. Unfortunately, there has been numerous studies have done because we kept a pretty good a track record uh, over the last 100 years at least. Uh, and, and, and all the studies that have uh, given an unmistaken conclusion that the true value investors, as it pra uh, properly practiced, have consistently uh, outperformed the market. Yeah. Whereas all, just about all other strategies uh, either match the market or severely underperform the market over a long period of time. Um, now you can dispute the result of it, but I think the evidence is a pretty persuasive. And so the question becomes, if that were the case, uh, of course the study also concluded that the true value investors at the properly practice really are a tiny small percentage of investing professionals. That is also a very interesting study, and, but they really do conform our day-to-day -day observation, having been in this profession for close to 20 years. Um, so why is the case? Why is the case? If the empirical studies conclude overwhelmingly that going through the value investing is, is the way to go, and uh, the philosophies and the practice are being well articulated for seven decades and well practiced and indeed publicized by tremendous successful examples such as Mr. Buffett, as we just mentioned, why not more people follow what they do? Well, it turned out it has a lot to do with the human psychology. In value investing, you have to have this frame of a mind that if you did your work correctly and the market against you, you should be comfortable standing alone. Um, and this is the concept behind Mr. Market. <clears throat> but that's really very difficult to do. It is a very unnatural thing to do. <clears throat> uh, when the whole market is against you, when everybody else really thinks you're stupid and uh, neurotic and wrong, and you now tend to think everybody else is in this market, irrational, neurotic. Uh, that is very, very unnatural things to do. Mm -hmm. And towards the borderlines of a self-delusion. 
Indeed, that's probably most people's view about you at the time. Uh, you look quite ridiculous and very uncomfortable. In fact, our very evolution requires a certain deal of conformity. Think about over the millenniums, over the uh, millions of the years of our evolutionary past. Uh, our ancestors, our animal predecessors, uh, you know, basically hunting groups. And if one was left out and disagree with everybody else in the group, very easily that one is not the one to survive. So all the genes that have survived in the past are the ones that tend to extreme degree of conformity. And, and conformity also works very well as a, for human society because we are at the end, at the heart, as social animals. We need that sense of glue of conformity and sympathy, compassion to bring the society in peace and live together. So you need a certain mutated genes, in a sense, to be utterly comfortable to stand alone when everybody else disagrees with you. Now that is the reason, at least that's one of the reasons, uh, the financial market in itself is not that efficient. Free market, ever since it was practiced in modern time, about two, three hundred years ago, has worked remarkably well. But it's worked most remarkably well, primarily, I think, in the goods and services, physical goods and definable services. We have several hundred years of <coughs> overwhelming evidence to support that one. Every country has been practiced that one, all turned out to be extraordinarily prosperous. Now, we also have uh, several hundred years of history of free market as a practice in the financial market, uh, full of disasters, up and down and tree movement. It doesn't really work nearly as well when it comes to financial asset. Why is it? Well, the financial asset at the core, in essence, is a discounted mechanism to predict the future. It's the discounted, estimated cash earnings into the infinity. And of course, we all know, A, we cannot predict infinity, and B, we can't even predict immediately beyond what we can see, which is usually very short. And so there's a necessary elements of a speculation and a guessing estimation into the valuations of financial asset. When that is exaggerated, there is an element in stock market and the financial market in general, the element of a gambling, element of a guessing, element of a speculation. And as we all know, in pure casinos and pure gambling, there is a huge advantage stock against players and really to the benefit of the casino owners who define the rules. And this is why gambling is a, such a profitable business. And yet that has never really uh, persuaded the people away from gambling. There is a certain element uh, that really fit human nature to love gambling. Even if everybody knows the odds are stacked against them, that has never protected prevented gambling from a very big business, especially when it's allowed and sanctioned by the government, such as a practice in Nevada or Macau and certain different geographies around the world. And so there is some aspect of that one in the financial market as well. <clears throat> and this is the reason why that 
it does not work uh, perfectly well, as recently illustrated by the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis, which is only in the stream of a long history of financial crisis. Uh, but it doesn't really mean that we have a better way of dealing with that. <clears throat> so just as Churchill said about democracy, it's perhaps the worst, except when compared with all the others. And so is the market. So is the free market when it comes to financial asset. It doesn't work very well. Certainly, it doesn't work nearly as well as goods and services. But it's still one of the better ways we have come up with in terms of facilitating the flow to finance, which is vital for the workings of modern economy. So it doesn't, so it works, so that really is a give us the challenge as a value investor, a true value investor. You just have to really reframe yourself from betting too often. Knowing that the financial market doesn't really work too well, but a lot of the time it works reasonably well. And so you want to really wait for the extreme situation before you can really make a bet. So that you have A, enough of a margin of safety, and B, that you can actually stand against the whole market that do happen. That requires an extreme discipline of, of demanding a large amount of margin of safety. Virtually all the successful Value investor practitioners really have all that element in common. They do not bet open, and whenever they bet, they require a large, large amount of market safety so that they will be comfortable in case the market moves against them. And so that they are seizing the opportunities that almost no brainer. And that really is the most difficult challenges. Most of people really has, uh, do not really have the necessary discipline, mental discipline to do that. And so you would say that in the, in the bull market, everybody practice, uh, everybody at least would call themselves bad investors. They buy something, they think there is a 20% discount to what they think is an intrinsic value. Uh, and, and, and when this goes up, uh, they really trump themselves as a successful, intelligent, and value investor. But then when the market really against them, which is very easy, 20% discount is almost within the era of margin of error. In the sense. <laughs> if the market began to, and you would say it would be the first one, respect the market runs. That's typically the case. And so when you see a situation like that, that is usually a sign that's not true. That investing is as is properly practiced. So, as a young student and a young analyst or somebody who's interested in finance, uh, I would strongly encourage you. The best way to do that is to study the successful practices in real life and examples or history. Uh, study very well all the examples of a great value investing decisions. I was talking to Asner on the way from the airport to pick me up. We talk about uh, his favorite stock in Russian oil, which reminds me of one of those great examples of value investing back in the early 90s. As some of you might know, in the early 90s, Russia went through a shock therapy and went into 
uh, free market almost overnight. In a short period of time, they privatized some of the most surprised uh, state asset, including local oil and gas problems we talk about. And it was uh, so short that most people don't really understand what it's all about. A lot of the people who worked in the uh, companies and also ordinary citizens were given certificate about that can really convert it to stock ownership, but most people really don't know what it is. So anybody who come along offer them a real cash, which they recognize, they were just afraid to give it away. So as a result of those certificate, at one point it was trading as an extraordinarily low prices. How low is the prices? Forget about the earnings. Just to sort of the asset on the balance sheet. At the time, the oil prices, I think in the four or five year average, around $20. And the reserve represented by the balance sheet, per share basis, value of the, per, uh, value of the oil per barrel, of the proven reserve at, at really a low prices. Esther, do you remember what was the price? Anybody remember? It was $20 per barrel traded on the open market. Anybody can imagine how low did it go? One cent on the dollar. Sometimes half cents on the dollar. In other words, about 10 cents to 20 cents per proven barrel of oil on the balance sheet. And that's not even counting the earnings uh, from the company. This is how low it went. It was ridiculous. Now, I thought at that point, that's some kind of a margin of safety, <laughs> even consider uh, the political situation in Russia. And it ultimately traded up, you know, for a longer period of time, it was a 20, 30 cents, 50 cents, and gradually moved to a dollar, and briefly traded to three dollars. And then a few years later, the Asian financial crisis occurred, and the Russian devalued the currency. So all of a sudden, a two dollar oil no longer looks very protected because the currency literally at one point it went down ninety percent. I mean nine zero. But if you really bought it at a ten cents, which is a half cents, half percent of the value, less than you know, not the ten percent of value, the currency down ninety percent, you still came on quite overnight. In fact, you still probably made it ten times your money. That's how an extreme situation can become. That would be a good example to study. So that you can really withstand a situation, external shock, that really shocked that one of the measure of value, in this case currency, by 90%, you still came up on top. That is how extreme it is, that concept of margin of safety, when you do practice. Take another example, a few years afterwards, back in 97, 98, the oil open market worldwide it traded below $10 for a period of several months. At the time, the five-year average is probably 20, as I, as I said before, but also the majority, actually if not all of the productions on the West, is above $10 cost. Exxon Mobil, you know, Shell, BP, you name it. Everything outside uh, Saudi Arabia, couple uh, Gulf state countries, a little part of Russia. Part of those is a small portion. It's not that small, but it's still a fraction of the overall production. Everybody's become unprofitable at $10 per oil. And at the time, we have not really figured out uh, 
how to replace Boeing. And so there were plenty, plenty of companies at the time uh, who's not losing money, even at the 10, and who's really making a great, and who has a huge amount of on the balance sheet. And you can calculate as to what it is amount to per share. And so there's a really an examples after examples after examples. So in every period of time, as I was in business, this is from the mid 90s, 90s, 94, 95. So it's nearly 20 years. I've never really uh, go through a period of time that I couldn't really find something just enticing and interesting. So if you especially operate a smaller pool of the money at any time, uh, because you're really kind of choosing from 100,000 different securities, mostly stocks, all over the world, there are always opportunities like that that give you plenty of margin of safety. But of course, the most interesting thing you want to do is not only you're talking about an asset, you're talking about an enduring, earning, generating franchise, a compounding machine, in other words. If you can combine the cheap prices on the asset, and also the quality of the asset, the ability to consistently generate cash earnings on a compounded, growing basis, that is the holy grail that you can really hold for the longest period of time. And no matter what the market really afford against you, you can really basically ignore it. Now, does a situation like that exist? I would argue it does. Maybe not for the larger amount of capital, but a smaller cap amount of capital. If I were a student today, and it has a few tens of thousands of dollars, I'll be really very happy to live in the environment as it is today. Now, if I have a larger amount of money, we have multiple challenges all over the world, uh, which we cannot really go into today. But if you have a smaller pool of money, there are tremendous opportunities like that in all small pocket I'll give you one uh, an example that you can really do more work to see whether it's interesting. Uh, in career, there's a, a form of a securities called a preferred securities. Essentially, it is a non-voting common stock that uh, pays slightly more preferred dividend, not much, but it cannot vote. Uh, but for interesting reasons, that they are treating sometime up to 70, 80% discount to their common equipment. And in that group of securities, there are several companies that really have enduring franchise that have been growing earnings and revenue on a compounded basis for over three, four decades. There's a franchise that nearly has a, is a fortress now. Purchase-like, great earning power machines, and it still has a lot of opportunity of expansion. And trading at uh, prices that uh, is essentially just tiny fraction of what it really should be worth in an open and a private transaction if you buy the whole company. In fact, you have really a comparison of the common stock and the voting common stock equivalent. A situation just like that really exists even today. There's absolutely no reason, especially some of those companies that I talk about it, uh, the family really controls the voting of the common anyway. So there is virtually no differences between 
the common uh, voting common and non-voting common. There was virtually no no differences, and yet the trading was an eighty percent discount. I'm not talking about twenty percent discount, eighty percent discount. Trading the twenty cents on the dollar, if you believe that that common value reflects the true, true value. So the opportunity that my point is really existed on all the different ones. So if you're starting your career, if you're young, if I were you, starting all over again, I would have first studied all the great examples in the past, in which the market went to the extreme on a small segment of the securities that give you a tremendous, tremendous margin of safety. Now all sorts of things happen. You will still come out okay, even if you lose money. You are still in the game. Study that one, and then study what is available today. And at any given time, there are always, always opportunities like that. It really has something to do with our fundamental human psychology. As long as human remains the same, which I suspect it will after millions of years, that opportunity exists. Which is quite an encouraging sign for young people. So, if I were you, I would be very excited today, as I was when I was sitting in the audience in your shoe about twenty、uh, years ago. So, good luck for that. Now, I open for questions. Yeah, I have a question.、Uh, when do you how do you decide when you sell the stock? Well, that's a very interesting question. Now, it depends what's the source of your value.、Uh, in some of the example that I stated, the source of the value it really is the、uh, is the asset value.、Uh, and in that case, you really want to really reevaluate your scenarios up. Aside and downside, every once in a while, because the situation changes. For example, in your favorite stock in the Russian oil, the local oils, and gas prop, I sold it two years after I first bought it.、Uh, and it just other, but at the time, they're still kind of a trading, probably ninety percent, eighty to ninety percent discount. But I think the eighty ninety percent discount is warranted somehow. Today, they're still trading it. A huge discount. I don't know what it is. You're probably more updated than I do. But relative to all the other countries, that I would feel less comfortable with that discount. I need more, and it just happened to be given a 99 percent discount, 99.5 percent discount. That was that was a fluke.、Yeah. Now, if you're really talking about earnings, I tend to be uh, less uh, in a hurry because if you really better write. The earning will continue to grow, and every time you sell a stock, you basically take out essentially a 30 to 40 percent of of interest-free borrow. By not really selling the stock, you avoided paying the capital gain taxes.、Uh, the state and federal together is somewhere in 20, 30, to 40 percent. I think it's going up.、And、as long as you're in that. In a sense, you're borrowing from the government on the interest-free and risk-free basis, and if the asset underlying、uh, asset continue to grow on a compounded basis, I would say that is a reason to be less in a hurry to sell. If it reflects in the、uh, fair value, I would、uh, keep it. 
But if they really go to the extreme overvalue situations and the business environment changes, of course, you do change your course of action. And that's a good thing about uh, uh, investing. Everything related and affected investment, all the circumstances changes all the time. That's why the game is so fun. Yeah, hi. Uh, I was wondering, what is the margin of safety that you look for before you uh, decided to buy? Yes. Again, that has something to do with the quality of the asset you're buying. If the quality of the asset is very high, your demand on the asset basis is low because you are uh, you are demanding that a margin of safety on the upside in terms of the earning generating power. Uh, whatever it is, you have to have an insight as to what this asset can generate for you. And somehow it is somewhat of a different insight, a unique insight. Whether you know the business particularly better than anybody else's, if you're really buying into the future earnings, or the asset, for whatever reason, you can withstand the balance sheet better uh, than the other people. You have to have a better insight as to what is the appropriate uh, value. And therefore, it may not really appear to other people as a large enough of a margin, but in your mind, you have a very, very large margin of safety. Uh, in my own case, I just think that uh, the larger you can get, it, the better. You want to have a very, very large margin of safety. Right, right. So how about assuming that you have no insights whatsoever as to what the future earnings power is, and you just assume that it's a no-growth business, what would you pay for that business? Well, in the case of that Russian, since I know very little about Russian, and I have every reason to be suspect, suspicious, so that goes to 99%, and I get extremely uncomfortable when it goes to 80%, for example. <laughs> and in the end, it actually that 90% evaporated because of the currency changes, although it came back. Uh, so in each situation is different, but in, 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 in the environment, I understand the external forces. I understand the management. I understand the general business practice in that particular culture. You would probably, you know, 70, 80% is actually pretty good. It's all situation specific. Okay, I just have to say that that's a pretty high hurdle rate. <laughs> well, that's why you don't have to. My whole point is you don't have to swing a lot. One of the key of the success uh, for being a long-term successful investor is you have to endure a long period of time in which you do nothing. You, you don't have to do a lot in order to be fabulously rich and prosperous. That's the good thing about to this game. Uh, you study all the time, but you don't have to do anything. And every time you do, when you don't have enough margin of safety, you can come out really losing. And that's really much worse thing than, really <laughs> than doing nothing. But every time you do do something, if you have large enough of uh, margin of safety, your upside is also becoming huge. And, and there are many, many examples, and I wouldn't have time to go into it, and in which when you turn when you turn out to be right, uh, the upside is just enormous. It could really surprise your wildest dreams. And you want to wait for those fat pitches most of the time. Okay. And then lastly, how much cash are you holding now? Thank uh, you. That, that is different from time to time. It depends on the opportunity. Yes. Hi, I'm Jenny from Berkeley. Um, I'm curious to hear your opinion on what you think are the domestic industry segments you think are most overvalued and undervalued today. 
Well, I, I, you know, there is, as I said, that, that to be a successful investor, you don't really have to know everything. You don't have to be a who claims he knows everything, every stock. Uh, in fact, that if you truly know something, that you fall into a small circle. Uh, Buffett would like to, among would like to call it a circle of confidence. You would have find in your circle. That circle tend to be small. So every time you hear people talking about, oh gee, I think that industry is overvalued, this industry is, 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 is undervalued. I, that is not intellectually honest to me, at least. Uh, investing, the last thing you want is to have that error of error. You know, arrogance might be a too strong word, but I, I think the more honest you are intellectually, the more prosperous you tend to be. I have never found any intellectually arrogant people who can successfully practice the game of the investment. Thank you for coming. Um, you talk about finding you know, great financial dislocations to try and find these tremendous upside situations. Would you maybe expound on your research, like how do you find these, these great dislocations where things are trading at 10% of what they were? Well, I, I find, as I look at my own career, uh, of all the ideas that I find, they really tend to come from uh, all sources. Uh, I don't have a particular rule where they come from. If you have a curious mind, if you study all the time, you maintain a good network of relationship with other smart, intelligent investors that have a way of really looking at what they do, you tend to find a lot of us first of the interesting ideas. And in today's age, uh, because this, this, this regulatory requirement toward disclosure, uh, I wouldn't be surprised you can really find a lot of great ideas uh, just out of reading publicly available information. It is judging what is a good opportunity that is really difficult. What's the process like of you uh, finally develop conviction and idea? Is that kind of like an aha moment, or can you describe how you come to that conviction level? Well, one of my favorite ways to describe the uh, uh, conviction of idea is that if you can find the most intelligent person who would oppose your idea, and you're able to argue more successfully than he does against your idea, that is when you can develop or entitled to some views. Um, and even then, you want to really confine yourself to a small segment of things that, that you think you're right. Uh, of course, as you uh, gain more experiences, your circle tends to expand but only small and gradually uh, over time. So I think that being intellectually honest is a huge requirement of being a successful analyst and a successful investor. Yes, uh, thank you for coming today. I uh, wanted to ask you a question about portfolio construction and, and uh, just hear your comments on diversification. In the last session, there was a lot of discussion about diversification and the importance of it. Um, my sense is that you're more of a concentrated investor. Some other investors are like that. Where, where does that, what kind of role does diversification play, or how do you think of it in building a portfolio? Well, you always have to have some kind of a diversification. Uh, because A, you could be wrong, and B, even if you're right, 
you're betting on statistics. In other words, the future is essentially a, uh, a distribution of all probabilities. Say so you, you have a 90% conviction, and you're right, that event is 90%, but then 10% chance has happened. And so you don't want to that 10% to get you out of the game. So you do need to diversification. On the other hand, that recognizing uh, is extremely rare to find no-brainer great opportunities. Extremely rare. In fact, you have to wait for a long time before the fat fish to come to you. Um, so when that happens, you certainly do not want to diversify away the opportunity that you have been waiting patiently for a long time to discover for some really inferior other opportunities. The investment is essentially is the opportunity cost. So one other uh, alternative have to really justify itself by comparing with the one you already have. And so when you make that comparison, you tend not to really diversify too much. You would find a few very, very good ones that have a very high uh, conviction and let it rise. And so, yes, you, you, you do a little bit of both. So, in, in that example, and, and you're kind of hitting precisely what I'm getting at, it, in, in a very high conviction idea, what do you feel the, the limits are in terms of, you know, how much you could be invested and what, you know, what considerations do you have? For well, I would say, as I said, that all decisions ought to be looked through the concept of the opportunity cost is what else can I do with the cash I have? And cash, by the way, is a really a fundamentally important asset. And if I don't really find anything else, or if I find a bunch of other opportunity inferior to cash, then I would keep it in cash. And so I, I would say that, uh, that I, I, it never bothers me to hold a large amount of cash if I can't find a great opportunities. At the same time, when I find, say, one good idea, I'll let it be a little bit bigger percentage of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the portfolio, and then everything else will compare with what I already have, which is cash. And sometimes holding cash can be the result of a bottom-up research. I always believe that's the case. Okay, well, thank you very much, and good luck.